Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 30. On the Psychoanalysis of Addictive Disorders. Although addiction and addiction-related disorders are among the most common forms of psychological suffering, they elicit a standard set of reactions, even among therapists, a reluctance to get too close to the addict, or the feeling that there is little that can be done to help anyway, sometimes even to the point of condemning or pushing away those suffering from addiction. The societal discussion of addiction has had a long and controversial history. To this day, one could say that it frequently alternates between moralizing and pathologizing on the one hand, and trivializing and denying on the other. Addiction itself then often appears to be both incomprehensible and at the same time something sinister. Is it possible that we are all susceptible to forming an addiction? Whether it be social media platforms or the gaming industry, new media of all kinds has achieved well-nigh industrial perfection in the dark arts of luring consumers into addictive behavior. A considerable amount of everyday media consumption could very well be understood in terms of addiction, albeit as a form of addiction that is socially acceptable and therefore less evident, even the norm. At the same time, distinguishing between a clinically strict definition of addictive disorders and widespread addictive-like behavior is undoubtedly important, as is further distinguishing between addiction and the capacity to enjoy. The idea that an affinity for pleasure inevitably leads to addiction is a prejudice of moral aestheticism. Already with Freud, we find mental well-being as defined as the ability to both work and enjoy. This episode is devoted primarily to a psychoanalytic approach to addictive disorders, bearing in mind that the subject is so multifaceted and complex that we can at most outline only a few basic ideas. Taking substance-related addictions, such as alcoholism, as a case in point. In diagnosing an addiction disorder, the two standard diagnostic manuals, the ICD and the DSM, have gathered the following criteria. Number one, lack of control. That is, consumption in spite of important obligations or physical risks, or in spite of an intensification of social and interpersonal problems. Number two, that is, the strong urge for a substance. Number three, unsuccessful attempts to reduce or control consumption. Number four, considerable time required for obtaining or consuming the drug, as well as for recovering from its effects, thus compromising other important activities. Number five, the development of physical tolerance, often leading to an increase in dosage and withdrawal symptoms if not consumed. The more points that apply, the more pronounced the addiction. We have attached a detailed list to the show notes of this episode. Of course, this often involves denial, rationalization, or concealing the problem shamefully. Cravings, increases in tolerance, and withdrawal symptoms 
are all specifically linked to neurobiological mechanisms. For example, the restructuring of certain receptors through repeated drug use, even after one-time use in the case of some addictive substances. Depending on the substance, these changes may also be permanent, even after abstinence. Withdrawal often requires medical assistance, depending on the severity of the addiction, and can be life-threatening otherwise. Understanding addictive disorders requires not only neurobiological, but also psychosocial and behavioral perspectives. The psychoanalytic approach is concerned with the psychic function in particular, and thus the unconscious meaning that an addictive substance can come to have for the metabolism of mental life. Some important psychoanalytic authors in this field can be found in the bibliography of this episode. From a psychoanalytic point of view, addiction is part of a complex organization of the self. A distinction has to be made as to whether the addictive behavior is part of other mental illnesses, such as psychoses, borderline disorders, or obsessive-compulsive disorders, and whether the addiction itself is the focal point of the problem, a so-called structural addiction. The boundaries between addiction and depression, for example, are usually fluid. Here it is important to bear in mind that in most cases it is not the addictive substance alone that leads to addiction. Indeed, in some cases, the use of an addictive substance does not lead to any problems of any kind, while in other cases, susceptibility or a predisposition towards addiction appear as the immediate result. After all, for the majority of people in Western societies, contact with alcohol does not ultimately lead to addiction in spite of occasional shenanigans. Alternatively, contact with certain addictive substances, for example, heroin, may not be entirely coincidental, but may be linked to difficulties in one's life history, such as a broken home or social disintegration. An addictive substance is needed for something. It fulfills certain psychological functions. The respective substance and its concrete effects as well as the addict's individual psychological structure, often appear remarkably well-matched. The etymology of addiction derives from the Latin word adesir, meaning to devote or to sacrifice, suggesting that addiction is not only about what is put into the body, but rather also about what is psychologically invested in its effect. Or to take a verse from Goethe about the seductiveness of sacrifice. Half drew she him, half sank he in. At least five psychological functions can be highlighted, which may have different importance for each individual. Number one, the reduction of unbearable tension. Number two, the numbing of negative feelings. Number three, the longing for an orgasmic fusionary oneness. Number four, withdrawal to a safe space. Number five, the manifestation of feelings of destructiveness and self-loathing. Number one, the reduction of unbearable tension. At the core of almost all addiction dynamics is the sensation of high inner tension and unease, a deep and primary feeling of frustration that can hardly be tolerated or transformed into other psychological states. Usually, 
This discomfort does not take the form of clearly identifiable feelings, often only first becoming accessible under the influence of some drug, for instance, as sadness, joy, or anger. The psychoanalyst Sandor Radeau calls this initial unease. This involves a feeling of fundamental dissatisfaction, which nothing can quench, an unfathomable emptiness that nothing can fill, except, that is, for the momentary effect of the drug, which can bring about a kind of inner calm, satisfaction, repleteness, and stillness. By the way, the classical psychoanalytic approaches would speak here of an oral fixation, the urge to take something good into oneself, to absorb or assimilate that which can finally bring inner calm. The activity of smoking compulsively is a suitable example here. Number two, the numbing of negative feelings. Frequently, addictive behavior is also used as a form of psychological self-medication. It helps to numb emotional pain, fear, grief, in most cases, also a crushing sense of shame or guilt, something we will explore in more detail shortly. These feelings only then become bearable under the influence of the addictive substance. It is possible to cry and mourn. The person is able to confide their feelings in others, to freely express their pent-up feelings like rage and aggression. Without the addictive substance, these inner wounds threaten to bring on a catastrophic depressive collapse. With the help of the addictive substance, these states become easier to control and can perhaps even be inverted into their opposite, which brings us to the next point. Number three, the longing for an orgasmic fusionary oneness. Depending on the substance, an intoxicating grandiose sense of self can be elicited, a feeling of intense happiness, an ecstatic joy that has the capacity to satisfy narcissistic needs. For a short time, there is a feeling of oneness with oneself, with one's state of being, if not with the whole world. The addictive substance satisfies the search for a sheltering embrace, something all-subsuming, a cosmic fusion perhaps only known from the experience of orgasm. The world, in contrast, is often experienced as cold, empty, disappointing, frustrating. A depressive experience not only of self, but in essence of the world as a whole. Number four, withdraw to a safe space. The addictive substance may also serve as a place of emotional withdrawal. The attachment to the addictive substance appears free from the frustrations and disappointments of interpersonal relationships and threatening affects. It offers an island of supposed security that is always attainable, always available. A seductive power that is perhaps also familiar to those of us who binge-watch TV series. That longing to retreat into the world of series, that sense of comfort, unwinding evenings after a day's work is done, alone in bed or with the family on the sofa. Something, however, that shouldn't necessarily be equated with a pathology, even if Series binging can indeed acquire an addictive quality. In extreme cases of addiction, nearly all relations to the outside world may be abandoned, resulting in a loss of reality, as if it were possible to coexist exclusively with the addictive substance, and all the devastating consequences 
that this has for real life. Number five, the manifestation of feelings of destructiveness and self-loathing. Addiction also always has a destructive side, not only because of the increase in neglect, the disregard for personal care, or the inability to form or maintain relationships, depending on the severity of the disorder. At the very core of the addictive dynamic, there is often something destructive at work, frequently in contrast with the person's usual character, which may often have something very sensitive, tender, and vulnerable about it. As it progresses, this destructive element can engulf more and more areas of one's life, profession, health, family and friends, hope. Indeed, this is one consequence of the addiction, but it can, in some cases, also unconsciously drive the addiction. A deep-seated self-loathing that destroys all that is dear to oneself, destroying all that is good and tearing down all prospects. The psychoanalyst Wolf Detlef Rost speaks here of a masochistic orgy, which some addictive dynamics can develop into, sometimes leading to complete destruction, a mental, physical, and social ground zero, to such an extent that it nearly gives credence to some older psychoanalytic conceptions of a death drive unleashed. However, there is another way to understand this, which we will explore in just a moment. In all addictive behavior, there is, to varying degrees, a manic, a sedative, or a destructive aspect. However, addiction's psychological function is different for each individual. For some, for example, it may be the calming aspects that are more important, while for others, it may be the destructive aspects. Therefore, the attractiveness of the respective substances depending on what it is unconsciously used for. Someone who seeks reassurance is more likely to turn to cannabis than to coke. Of course, there are also big differences in consumption habits. For example, whether addiction behavior tends to escalate or whether such behavior is integrated more deeply into life, perhaps even into ritualized structures where it can be easily managed. But what are the reasons that someone might become addicted? What is true about the psychological function of addictive substances is all the more true about its causes and an individual's biography. In other words, there is no single cause just as there is no such thing as an addictive personality and so on. Nevertheless, psychoanalytic authors have worked out some characteristics, which we will now take up. At the root of addiction is often the experience of profound powerlessness in the early stages of life, especially severe cases of addiction, such as severe alcoholism. Be that an atmosphere in the family of coldness and indifference, neglect, or the feeling of not being wanted, not being loved. Children in such settings undergo severe injuries to their sense of self early on. For a small child, not feeling loved means being nothing, not existing, being of no value. Tragically, children come to identify with this self-image unless offered a different experience. Despite the more mature layers that are superimposed over the course of one's life, at core, there still remains a feeling of nothingness, that unloved child in one's soul, contemptible even to oneself. Psychoanalytically, one could also say that an archaic, cruel superego develops, which allows hardly any leeway to the living, childlike self, 
for instance, if they make any mistakes. At the same time, a deep unconscious aggression can develop, rooted in deep frustration. The aggression is shifted onto the self where it acts out its rage. Indirectly, others are affected as well. The self-destructive behavior drags them into feeling deeply paralyzed, powerless, angry, and invalidated. Those around the addict are also entangled in the unconscious relationship dynamics, especially in close emotional relationships. While this is true for all emotionally significant relationships, it has devastating consequences in the case of addiction. On the other hand, the drug is the longing for paradise lost prematurely, an almost embryonic fusion of oneness. At the same time, it is also a vehicle for deep frustration and rage. A damaged bond between parents and child is often manifest directly, an overt denigration and rejection, violence, indifference, neglect. Sometimes, however, there does appear to be a good bond, at least on the surface. As in the image the family projects outwardly, the child is provided for, given time, is perhaps even spoiled. On closer inspection, however, something is missing from this image. The family may come across as emotionally uninvested in one another, lacking in the kind of contact between parent and child that is truly emotional, resonant, and vibrant. Perhaps there is emotional distance or even coldness. Perhaps there is also a clear wish for intimacy, which, however, remains unfulfilled in the relationship. These types of relationship dynamics have often been strongly shaped by functional concerns. For one, in that the child itself is functionalized, meaning there is an unconscious expectation that it is there to serve certain ends. It is not for its own sake that the child is there. It is not for its own sake that it is seen and loved. There is something the parents use it for, be that as a status symbol, be that for the fulfillment of narcissistic desires and needs, or be that as an emotional anchor and stabilizer. Or the child is necessary to feel like a real family. In other words, they are there to be seen, but not heard. The concrete interactions between the parents and the child can also have this functional quality. Something that is done simply to ensure that the child is no longer a disturbance, or that it once again satisfies certain ends. One can imagine, for example, a child crying and the mother or father turning to him, however, not out of interest in the child or some compassionate concern, but instead because the crying has disturbed some conception that they have of their child, their family, of harmony, or because it has activated certain feelings of guilt. It is also possible that the parent's life and financial situation is so stressful that there is little room for a crying, needy child. The attention given to the child takes on a functional character, its main aim being to persuade the child to stop crying, to make it function again. The objective has been met once the correct behavior, i.e. the behavior most desired by the parents, has been produced. When this is the prevailing imperative in the relationship, it means for the child that their most basic emotional needs are not being met. As a result, the child may become increasingly passive, complying with the imperative to function, resigning itself to expectations. Instead of experiencing that mutual understanding and genuine interest can dry up the tears, 
The psychoanalyst Roland Feuchtel speaks here of a passive surrender. It is worth examining the correlation between functionalizing relationships and the mechanism of addiction on the level of society. Whenever dependency on media, consumer goods, food products, or substances is cultivated deliberately, it is precisely this kind of functionalizing relationship that serves as the guiding principle. One need only think of the psychological organization of advertising, the appeal to affects, the longing for recognition, the arousal of sexual desires, the range of emotional triggers and appearance of interpersonal warmth. All of these serve a purpose, are intended to fulfill a certain function, namely to grab your attention in order ultimately to sell you something. Consequentially, those who are manipulated with advertising are not subjects in the psychologically relevant sense, but rather objects that can be conditioned to react in certain ways with the right stimuli. Or social media's subtle mechanisms of dependency, in which genuine interpersonal contact and emotions are exploited by a third party, a hidden algorithm, configured around specific ends, for example, to present as much advertising as possible. Although it is concealed, third parties make use of interpersonal exchange in pursuit of their own aims and according to their own interests, even intruding into the private sphere and manipulating the flow of communication, for example, in that only certain kinds of information is displayed. It may not yet be foreseeable what impact it will have on our self-understanding when entire generations form a substantial part of their relationships in such spaces. Functional modes of relating have become widespread in our society and in our ways of thinking, and have perhaps also fostered a certain collective tendency towards addiction. However, this is clearly not the only way to understand how addiction manifests itself. The life stories of people with severe addiction often involve severely damaged relationships in which the experience of genuine emotional care was scarcely possible or only very fragile. Relating to a child functionally may indeed be the parent's helpless attempt to give their child something good, something that they could not give in any other way, perhaps because they themselves have mostly felt pain or worthlessness, or because they have not known any other mode of contact. At the core of such relationships lies something dead, perhaps something terribly sad. Through consuming an addictive substance, something from the history of a tragic relationship is being repeated. There seems to be no other way than to use some external medium to feel better. Inner balance is not brought about through one's own active effort, but rather passively through the effect of the substance. Yet with consumption also comes disappointment. Emptiness follows, for unlike the experience of a genuine relationship, the substance cannot be psychologically internalized and integrated, does not actually create mental structure. On an unconscious level, reliance on the addictive substance can also signify a continuing attachment to early parental figures, whom one cannot let go of, precisely because they are the source of so much disappointment, and thus also represent the hope of finally getting something good. What children and such families learn from the start is that they are not good just as they are, or also that the parents are deeply unhappy, something children often blame themselves for. I couldn't make my parents happy. As a result, 
they lack the existentially vital experience of being able to bring out love in others. That gleam in their parents' eye and their shared happiness just by being who they are. The child, too, is denied the good it has to give, that it would give to others, feeling as a result that it has nothing to give, nothing good within, combined with a pervasive feeling of nothingness and existential shame. In Leon Wormsler's conception, addictive disorders are fundamentally linked to feelings of shame and guilt. A fatal dynamic arises out of the underlying conviction of having nothing good, of not being able to bring happiness. In Wormsler's words, shame, the deep feeling that one is not good, that one has not been able to do or accomplish what one should, that one has neglected one's responsibility, caused others harm, guilt. This sentence sums up what is perhaps the central dilemma of addiction, an unbearable feeling of shame and guilt, of worthlessness, of one's own wickedness, which can only be temporarily numbed or endured through the effects of the drug. Drug use does indeed prevent a depressive crisis and is a means of psychological survival. It is, at the very least, something good that is felt within. At the same time, however, drug use leads deeper and deeper into feelings of shame and guilt, and indeed often results in real feelings of guilt, by disappointing and betraying those closest, humiliating oneself, and leaving an ever-expanding void in one's wake. These crushing feelings can, in turn, only be tolerated with the help of continued drug use, a vicious cycle. At the same time, a basic fear of relationships can also develop from early relationship experiences, which, in spite of all desires for oneness, can interfere with the formation of relationships or intimacy. Connected to a fear of being seen, or a high degree of vulnerability and irritability, interpersonal contact is potentially frightening for the experience of oneself. Substance abuse thus provides a compromise solution. The drug is predictable, will not let one down, cannot disappoint, and above all, it does not judge. The addictive substance offers the possibility of regulating affects without the need for real relationships. Addiction thus appears as a possible solution to the dilemma of closeness versus distance. That desire for a fusionary closeness and merger, while at the same time the protection of the ego, here, that means not being seen, judged, or recognized. Feuchtel speaks here of a relationally disassociated pseudo-autonomy. The drug offers the apparent possibility of being dependent and autonomous at the same time. Reliance on the addictive substance essentially leads to the avoidance of conflict and the threatening experience of relationships. In psychotherapy, this leads to one of the central difficulties in treatment. The addictive substance appears to offer quick relief, respite, a refuge, especially at times when unpleasant feelings and conflict-ridden issues arise, which, indeed, is what therapy is all about. In order for therapy to be effective, conflicts must be brought into therapeutic space to be worked on, which also entails some frustration and temporary discomfort. If the conflict has already been sedated by a narcotic, then the therapy will fizzle out sooner or later. The addictive substance can serve here as a form of resistance, 
as a less threatening substitute for the relationship, or as a means of avoidance, repression, or passive evasion. A typical transference-countertransference behavior is that the therapist feels replaced and substituted by the drug, feels disappointed, possibly angry, and feels the need to resort to sanctions and methods of control. Or the therapist feels tempted to give in, to downplay or deny the patient's substance abuse, to band together like friends, for example, by concealing the issue from health insurance providers, or by pushing it into the background. This means falling into a kind of codependency, as often happens to the family members of addicts. Psychotherapies can be helpful in finding a way out of addiction. Depending on the severity, however, additional medical and sometimes psychosocial treatment may be needed. However, many addiction therapies face a dilemma right from the start. On the one hand, the therapy is supposed to ensure lasting abstinence. On the other hand, in many cases, abstinence from the drug is a precondition of the therapy. From this point of view, what is likely to be decisive is whether the patient is capable of doing therapy. For example, can a patient come to sessions sober, keep appointments and agreements as much as possible? Sometimes, therapy can simply mean working towards entering inpatient treatment. The relationship dynamics in therapy may indeed invariably return to the question of how much responsibility the addicted person can take on for themselves and the agreements they've made, how much control he or she unconsciously shifts onto the therapist, and how the therapist in turn handles these dynamics. Unlike an inpatient treatment, there is a limited extent to which outpatient therapists can assume the role of a guiding and monitoring agent. It is thus crucial for treatment that the patient is able and willing to take on this responsibility themselves. In order to understand the causes behind the addiction and how it functions, it is also important that the patient can talk openly about the addictive substance, the cravings it generates, and any relapses without the threat of taboo or fear of punishment. It is crucial that the therapist ensures the proper environment for the therapy without abandoning an approach that is based on understanding and without becoming the addict's own personal disciplinarian. And this is often a delicate balancing act that does not always work out. It is at precisely this point that the functionalizing relationship mode we already discussed can make its entrance, where it can then settle itself into the transference-countertransference relationship between therapist and patient. For example, the patient delegates to the therapist responsibility for the therapy, the keeping of appointments, the progress of the therapeutic work, as if the therapy was taken up at the request and in the interests of the therapist, to which the patient passively submits themselves, or against which they passively resist. This can come about, for example, when the patient withdraws from the relationship, prompting the therapist to succumb all the more to the urge to take over control and tighten their grip. Or conversely, if the therapist is too compliant, offering himself to the patient like a pliable object that can be used or set aside as needed. In other words, the therapist is rendered functional in the relationship, culminating in the growing feeling that the relationship is parasitic. In fact, this relationship dynamic turns the therapist into an inanimate object, if you will. 
a drug to be used, but with which no living relationship is possible. Here, as in every psychoanalytic therapy, the point is to address such relationship dynamics, to understand them, and to connect them with the patient's history. Only once it is understood that they are treating the therapist like a drug, like a dead object, and not a real person, with whom one can enter into genuine living contact, a person who is showing a genuine interest, and a relationship for which one also bears responsibility. Only then will there perhaps emerge over time the emotional fullness sufficient to counter the gravity of the addictive substance. For many addicts, addictive cravings remain palpable for their entire life, but over the course of therapy may fade into the background to such an extent that a fulfilling life is possible without it. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.